The world has become a much smaller place. Not only do goods cross borders and flow between and among nations, but so too does our money. Yet moving money and other financial assets across nations introduces complexity in how we all manage our affairs. While we all might not want to put all of our eggs in one national basket, investing and transacting offshore does introduce a degree of complexity. How should I invest offshore? What structures should I use? What are the tax and estate planning implications of much of these choices? And can I repatriate any interest, dividends, or any other money I might make abroad? In this episode of the Investec Wealth Creation Podcast, we answer these questions and so much more. With the aid of two of my guests, I'm joined by Jill Anthony and Johansi Meikis. Joe is an advisor in the tax and fiduciary team at Investec Wealth and Investment. And aside from all the time she spends teeing off at the golf course, she also plays the guitar and enjoys experiencing different cultures abroad. Jill, on the other hand, is also an advisor in the tax and fiduciary team at Investec Wealth and Investment, and Jill is the single mother of Imani, her treasured kitten. She's also a foodie with an occasional inclination for adventure sports. Joe and Jill, welcome to the Pair Review and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Ayabulga. Okay, so let's get into it. Joe, I'm going to start off with you. I mean, you know, how we invest offshore and how we preserve our wealth offshore um, has major implications. People often talk about trusts. Um, the big question for me is, you know, are these a suitable succession planning legacy and a wealth preservation vehicle? Generally, and it's always actually been, um, trust has been under quite a lot of scrutiny um, for the past couple of years, and it still is. Um, there's a lot of reporting, KYC, that's applicable when talking about trusts. There's a lot of countries like the US, Portugal, um, Australia, that doesn't necessarily look favorable to trusts. But there is definitely still a place in the landscape of succession, wealth preservation um, and legacy planning for trusts. If we even though there is some tax, you know, um, implications, there's a tax play to trusts. If we took tax aside and say, what what is the meaning of a trust? Tax aside, depending on the facts and circumstances of a specific client, there's still a place for trusts in this specific estate planning and efficient estate planning. If you look about South African-based clients um, with no intention to immigrate, in our law in South Africa, there's still minors can't inherit, domestic trusts cannot invest offshore. There's um, not really other suitable vehicles to give you that effective rand hedge, wealth preservation, succession planning. And a lot of people are looking to like expand businesses offshore. So when you're looking in that type of framework, offshore trusts really start making sense. But there's a massive disclaimer here. The cost of these structures are massive at the moment. There's uh, with all the compliance obligations, it is really high. So you before you think about setting up an offshore structure or a structure in general, you need to make sure that the um, that the benefits that you are um, um, deriving from the structure outweighs any cost and compliance obligations that goes along with it. If we're looking more to a you know a local side, one thing that I that I that we realize is that there's no real alternative for succession vehicles. If you think about miners that can't inherit, business legacies that needs to go um, over, so expansion of businesses, as I said. So it is really it's important to know that from a, from a leg- from a legacy perspective, it still makes sense to use a trust vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Jill, let me bring you in here because I think the point Joe makes about, you know, considering the compliance and the reporting obligations and, you know, the extra costs associated with doing so, 
we could add an extra layer there, which is around tax um, and, of course, the obligations arising from some of this offshoring with the receiver of revenue. There have been some changes on that front, uh, which I guess will influence how people can externalize or offshore some of their funds, which also have an implication, by the way, on one's ability to, once you've invested overseas, to bring some of that money back. Talk to us about that. So if we had to start from an exchange control perspective, now, the exchange control allowances have remained the same. So you have your single discretionary allowance or your travel allowance of 1 million rand, and you don't need a tax clearance for that. So essentially what you pay your Netflix with, what you use on your trip to Greece when you do your online shopping offshore, that falls within your single discretionary allowance of 1 million rand. However, when it comes to your foreign investments allowance of 10 million rand, or when you apply for an allowance in excess of 10 million rand, or even when you had to immigrate from South Africa, there was a different process to obtain your tax clearance certificate or your tax clearance status with SARS um, for each of those allowances. So what has essentially happened now is that SARS has now made the process for this uniform and has renamed it to Approval of International Transfers or AIT. Now, there's been a lot of fear mongering around this, that you can't externalize your funds and SARS wants you to open your kimono entirely. But essentially, we have to be mindful that Treasury has mentioned that they're going to be tightening up on compliance in the previous two budgets. So we did anticipate this. And secondly, as South Africa has been grey listed, of course, there's going to be increased scrutiny. But with regards to the increased information, we really haven't seen a lot of that. Um, it hasn't really hampered a lot of our clients externalizing funds. Um, from a compliance perspective, if our clients are compliant, you can still be still seeing their um, funds being approved for these tax clearance statuses. Um, the questions are more targeted and they are asking for information such as bank account details and disclosure with regard to foreign structures. But essentially, if our, if you are compliant, that should not hamper you from externalizing funds offshore. Mm. Uh, are other disclosure requirements much higher, Jill, um, than would have been the case before? In terms of? So, so in terms of all you have to put on the table here, I mean, you did say that, um, you know, it seems everybody wants to now see what's, um, you know, uh, I guess beneath the kimono, if I can say that. But I mean, does that imply that I now need to disclose all of my assets every and any way in the world? No. So essentially, when you applied for your 10 million foreign investment allowance previously, you always had to provide a statement of your assets and liabilities for the previous three years. You include your offshore assets now, and it did trigger an automatic audit. So from that perspective, it's just that the information is now uniform and you, and the request for information is standardized. There's not different bits and bobs requested for different tax clearance statuses, etc. Maybe, Joe, just while we're still on this matter, I mean, from where you're sitting, what do you think would distinguish uh, the South African trust landscape from maybe some of the other, you know, compliance and reporting obligations you'd mentioned earlier um, that would exist in other jurisdictions? So we were actually quite behind this um, for a while. Um, you see the UK implementing quite, you know, transparency requirements um, when it comes to, you know, trust beneficial ownership, um, company beneficial ownership. And what, what South Africa did is they actually did impose some new um, rules and regulations regarding that. And the aim of this is really just to improve trans transparency of trusts, beneficial ownership, and also try and see how we can use this to actually um, increase tax compliance of trusts. So practically, if I think about it, um, myself, my husband and our uncle Arnie is um, trustees of a South African domestic trusts. 
and um, we have our children as beneficiaries of this trust. So what does this practically mean for, let's say, a normal family environment like this? It would be from an AML perspective, there's now AML reporting requirements that is required. Um, and one thing that's quite nice um, is you would have had to register as an accountable institution um, um, at the Financial Intelligence Center um, and you had to submit an AML report. But if you're an individual in a family context and you do not generate a business or income for these trustee services, that first requirement, the AML requirement, is actually not actually enforceable for you and you don't have to adhere to the AML um, reporting. But the beneficial ownership reporting is something that everybody needs to comply with. Beneficial ownership is they really want to see who's behind this trust. Trustees, um, the founder, the settler, the beneficiaries. So we had to, we would have to um, disclose all our children, the trustees, our, our, our names, and actually submit that and upload that to the master's portal and give them that information. From a SARS perspective, what they're trying to do is they, even though they have access to this information, they are specifically asking the trustees to submit a report annually on, you know, what trust distributions came about um, in the year that passed so that they can actually, you know, cross-reference that to all the information that is available. So you can see there's a bit of a big push. And I think also the grey listing had a big, big um, relevance to this to see how we can become more compliant, more transparent, more um, from a tax compliance perspective, more um, have all of that, all our ducks in the row there. And that, that's why this specific regulations has been in play. Joe, jo, would you perhaps like to touch on, um, I mean, we discussed how expensive the compliance may be and whether that the trust still, is still rendered viable. Would you perhaps like to touch on that? Yeah, a lot of our clients actually is currently looking at really the viability of the South African trusts. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, um, all these compliance obligations and reports and everything that you need to do, it becomes makes the, a South African trust, which was relatively inexpensive back in the day, becomes actually now quite expensive and there's quite administrative fees for it. So we really believe there is a massive benefit of trusts in certain circumstances, but you really need to go do that cost versus benefit analysis mm. to see whether this the retention of this trust is really suitable for you and your family. Yeah. So it's not just about setting up a trust, you know, and saying, well, you, you want your trust to be able to bequeath something to your children. But um, it's about really getting your ducks in a row and doing a lot of the spade work to try and understand what the implications of that will be. And I, I think the importance now of getting advice on this, because not all of us uh, every day interact with this. And so that's why it becomes quite important to get advice. Jill, let me come back to you. Many of our listeners uh, would certainly know or would have heard about this notion of residency via investment. I mean, we've seen it in countries like, um, you know, in the Caribbean, in Europe, certain countries in the Middle East, where by investment, one can get, you know, tenured residency in many of those places. Uh, it's an attractive immigration proposition. But when is this a bad idea? What are some of the unintended consequences of going that route? Yeah, so I would say what we generally see is the majority of our clients love it here. They love South Africa. It's a wonderful country. Um, and a lot of them just want a plan B, but want to live in South Africa. And that's what triggers them to engage in exploring these residency programs offshore. Generally, our view is that if you externalize enough funds, 
right? In the event that you are no longer happy here, you can just hop on a plane and you can leave and you can live anywhere else in the world. So we don't necessarily promote the idea of getting residency elsewhere. And the reason for that is the unintended consequences like you've mentioned. So to premise this, if you are are going to look for a plan B, um, we would really recommend that you get formal estate and tax advice. And the reason for that being is that firstly, one of the unintended consequences of residency programs offshore is forced airship. Now, South Africans generally have freedom of testation. So that means in your will, I can give my assets to Tom, Dick and Harry, and I don't have to consider Imani or my husband or my parents. I can leave all my assets to my cat or PBO for cats, for example. Whereas in other jurisdictions such as Portugal, Mauritius and Spain, they have the concept of forced airship, which essentially means that um, a portion of your assets, you don't have testamentary freedom over, and you are obliged to leave your assets to certain people in certain proportions. So there's that limitation. It's also important to note that having residency in a different country does not automatically equate to tax residency. So just because you have a residency in Portugal or Spain, for example, if your ordinary mode of life is still here, your pipe and slippers is still here, your fishing club and your golf club is still here, you're still tax resident here. You're not tax resident here until your base moves to that other country. However, certain jurisdictions, for example, like the US, as soon as you have a green card, you are a US tax resident. Now, that complicates your filing because now you're a tax resident in more than one country. And then there's unintended consequences for your structures. So if you have a trust structure and you're a U.S. person and you're receiving distributions from that structure, it may render that structure wholly inviolable. So do your research, get your advice, and use suitably qualified service providers um, when you decide to engage in a residency program offshore. Jill, when you say wholly unviable, what does that mean? I mean, does it mean the structure itself, because of that complication, is now tax non-compliant or non-existent? It makes it tax efficient. Now, essentially, if, if we had to use the example of the U.S., since we're on the, the point of the U.S., if you had to receive a distribution from a U.S. trust as a U.S. person, and this U.S. this trust has not been set up specifically for U.S. persons, Generally, South African trusts are discretionary. We have our very own reasons for setting them up. Essentially, what could happen is that when you receive a distribution from that trust, the entirety of that distribution could be wiped out by penalties and interests. So without getting too complicated, the U.S. has what we call throwback rules. So, for example, if you were to receive a distribution from a trust that has unretained net income, so income that has sat in your trust and it's been accumulating in your trust, and if you receive it in 2023, however, that income has been there since 2010, then they will treat you as having received that income in 2010 and not declared it, and then there's penalties and interest. So you do need formal tax advice prior to getting residency elsewhere or relocating elsewhere just to make sure that your structures are still sound and that your estate planning still makes sense. Hmm. It seems to me here, Joe, that the, the costs of not getting proper advice are immense. I mean, it just seems that the environment is layered with booby traps. Um, if I can say so myself, 
that do require somebody as a trusted advisor to handhold you and take you through this process because it might have implications not just for you as the trustee, but also many of your beneficiaries. Yeah, definitely. Um, and from a from a from a state planning perspective, or even from a tax perspective, there's a, there's a lot of things to consider. So if if you're if you're that person that is just investing offshore, but you have a SA base, that has some that has that has um, some implications to understand because your your assets are offshore, and what does that mean from a succession perspective and from a tax perspective? And then also you have um you 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 have those clients that are immigrating, you know, lock, stock, and barrel leaving South Africa, and that pre-immigration planning, that planning the drill specified, that is very important because there's so many things that you can do before you leave to make that your move into this new country so much more tax efficient, but also from a succession perspective. So Jill, we've seen in the last uh, few years or so, I think over the last five years or so, according to the receiver of revenue, that uh, over 40,500 taxpayers have ended their residency in South Africa. Um, The process one follows uh, prior to shifting their tax residency to another country. If we're talking about reporting compliance and you know other things we might want to consider, uh, what goes into that process? Yeah, well, the very first thing I, I tell my clients when they let me know that they're considering immigrating is don't let the tax tail wag the commercial dog. I mean, you need to decide where you'd like to live. So where do you like the weather? Where do you like the golf course? Where, do you, where are there good schools for your kids? That would be your primary decision. And we also need to make a distinction between kids wanting to study or working abroad or having a look-see in a different jurisdiction. That doesn't amount to immigrating. Immigrating primarily revolves around your intention. So you no longer consider South Africa to be your home and you prefer the weather in the UK and you'd like to set up shop there, then you could decide to formally immigrate. Now, there is a SARS process. It's largely a SARS process now. Um, so essentially your tax consultant or your accountant could do the process on e-filing, but without getting into the nitty gritties, the important aspects to bear in mind is that when you are no longer a South African tax resident, it triggers a deemed disposal on your worldwide assets subject to certain exemptions. So essentially that's a capital gains tax event and capital gains tax is debit at a maximum of 18% for individuals. So that's an important aspect. Once that liability is paid and you've gone through the entire process on e-filing, then you'll be free to externalize your assets. But one aspect that's important is Joe spoke about structures and when they are viable. But if you are a non-resident in South Africa, you need to ask yourself, will my South African trust still make sense for me? Because certain beneficial planning that makes sense for South African taxpayers is lost once you become non-resident, firstly. And secondly, depending on which jurisdiction you end up in, so for example, I mean, we've already spoken about the US, but there's Israel, there's Canada, Australia, and the UK. And from a tax efficiency perspective, these trust structures become nightmares. So it's important to get advice in South Africa prior to um, starting your immigration process. Secondly, as a non-resident, you'll be taxed on South African on a source basis, but you also need to think about your retirement products. So which retirement products can I externalize fully? Which retirement products need to stay in South Africa and will be taxed yet, potentially? Um, and which retirement products do I have to wait three years of being a non-resident firstly to externalize? And we, if you had to think with a forward hat, the country that I'm going to be setting up shop in, are there any tax breaks available there? So, for example, countries like Australia, Israel, and the UK have beneficial tax treatments. So, for example, you may be resident there for a certain period and only pay tax on 
source on a source basis so whatever arises in that jurisdiction so it's really really important to get pre-immigration advice both in south africa and your potential new country of residence thank you so much for that uh, jill it does speak at length to i guess the universe of considerations one has to take into account um procedurally and otherwise but also you don't want your entire working life labors and sacrifice in you know putting money away for retirement to then all amount to naught uh, because of such a move the other thing also a uh, job we might not want is for this to have an adverse implication on estate planning questions of succession and so on which we touched on a bit earlier um but yeah please come in on that score you know how would this shift uh, influence one's estate planning decision yeah so i suppose it's easier to explain if we start with with South Africa. So let's say I have a, I'm a South African and I've got only South African assets. Should I pass away with a will? My will will be taken to the master's office and he will issue me with a letter of executorship. And that letter of executorship gives my executor the authority to deal with South African assets. Okay? But let's say I had offshore assets. Now, that authority doesn't necessarily it rec- is not necessarily recognized in the other country where my assets are situated. Therefore, there's another process that you're going to have to go through in that other country to actually get similar authority to get um, to have that your executive deal with those assets. So a lot of a lot of clients all of a sudden go to the the idea of going, okay, but then I need two wills or five wills because I have assets in Australia and I've got assets in Portugal and assets there. And our general house view is like, listen, always keep it simple. Let's keep it simple. Have a worldwide will in South Africa. There is this process that you can deal with offshore to go to deal with your offshore assets to the extent that um, they require a grant of probate. And that's just the legal term that we require. But there is a bit of a disclaimer there. If you have off- uh, offshore immovable property, fixed assets in, a, in another jurisdiction, we almost always advise a client to get a um, will in that jurisdiction specifically dealing with immovable property and we can we can we, we can exempt it, uh, we can exclude it from the south african asset and the reason why is uh, if you think about bank accounts and financial institutions and probate requirements and selling of investments constantly your your life changes constantly so kind of catering for a worldwide basis um, scenario is much better than constantly having to update and change your wills in these jurisdictions every time something changes abroad so that kind of puts the landscape for South Africans in perspective. But if you if you are leaving South Africa, lock, stock and barrel in Joel's case, um, where, you know, never to return to South Africa again, and most of your assets also left with you, you need to then go and reconsider, is a South African will still the correct succession in- instrument for me? Um, how do I deal with all the changes that we implemented in pre-immigration, whether it's collapsing of trusts or, you know, reorganizing trusts? Did, did we cater for all of that in our wills? And then maybe, you know, suitably looking at, you know, where's your assets? Have a re, um, have an analysis about that and really go look at what is the most appropriate will for you, taking into account your new country um, succession laws and, um, yeah, succession legislation. I was just going to say, and if you do have two separate wills, um, it's just important to ensure that those wills speak to one another and don't inadvertently cancel one another out. Yeah, I've learned something new today. Worldwide wills, WWW. So maybe just as we wrap up, uh, Joe, I'll start off with you. Two things to consider if I'm considering shifting my money abroad for short-term reasons or 
if I'm making a longer term move uh, via immigration and so, if you could just sum up just two things one might want to consider, what would those be? And uh, I guess same question to you as well, uh, uh, Mamaga Imani. So if I'm going to be externalizing funds, um, make sure you are compliant and you'll be able to externalize your funds freely. Uh, we have seen exchange control relaxing. So previously you weren't able to place your assets at the disposal of another South African resident. Now you can also contribute your special application funds. So those are your funds in excess of 10 million. You can contribute it to an offshore trust structure now. So South Africa is still a great place to be. But if I could just drive the point home, compliance, compliance, compliance and ensure that your estate planning is up to date and that you get tax advice in the relevant jurisdictions. Awesome. Joe? Mine will probably be make sure that the benefit on anything that you're sitting up really outweighs the cost of this, uh, cost of it, whether it's, you know, structures or um, the amount of wills that you're going to put in place. Make sure that this is all, it, it, the benefits outweighs the, the cost of the structure. And when it comes into the landscape that we find ourselves in you know make sure that you're compliant that you are from a trust perspective from a tax perspective from a trust laws perspective and then also in different jurisdictions um, we actually didn't actually touch on it but there's so many tax reporting and tax compliance in other jurisdictions by virtue of just having assets there uh, for, for a silly examples that the US and the UK have death taxes. So very similarly to in South Africa, we have a state duty, but they've got actually quite hefty death taxes in their country. So if you just pass away holding a asset in the US or in the UK, you're liable for death taxes there at, you know, in some some instances to a maximum um, rate of 40%. And yeah, if we think about South Africa, it's only 20 to 25%. So understanding how that works and making sure you have liquidity to pay that. And I think, I think should you pass away, and we're talking a lot about death today, but should you pass away, I think you want to make sure that whatever you'd leave your beneficiaries and your heirs is, is not a mess. Make sure that you thought about this. Make sure you actually got advice about this because um, ultimately that's a t- it's a time of grief and not necessarily a time for admin. And I think if you can leave that for your heirs, I think you can leave them a lot. And you don't want your executor to go to jail because he didn't pay your offshore inheritance taxes. <laughs> or that. Or that. That is a very important question. Exactly. So those two things that I guess none of us can avoid, death and taxes, uh, are very much part of our discussion in this episode. To uh, Joe and Jill, much thanks to the pair of you. Uh, and I guess uh, to you, the listener, the lesson, very clear. Get your affairs in order. Um, and more importantly, ask for help and advice because it does seem that there's an entire rigmarole of regulations and reports and uh, obligations that one might want to consider if you're considering shifting and moving your assets and operations to more than one jurisdiction. Joe and Jill, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ayabulga. Now that brings us to the end of yet another informative conversation here on the Wealth Creation Podcast. We do hope that the nuggets of insight that we've shared over the past few episodes are edging you closer to your wealth creation aspirations. Do visit Investec Focus to catch up on any of our past episodes, and you can also stay updated on any of our upcoming episodes in this series. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of Investec Wealth and Investment International and should not be taken as advice, guidance, or recommendation. Investec Wealth and Investment International, a member of the JSC Equity, 
equity derivatives, currency derivatives, bond derivatives, and interest rate derivatives markets, an authorized financial services provider, and a registered credit provider.